In one of the last acts of his pontificate, Pope Benedict XVI gave an address to the clergy of the Diocese of Rome on the subject of the Second Vatican Council. In the address, he drew a distinction between what he termed the virtual council or the council of the media and the real council or the council of those who actually produced the documents. He observed, so Pope Benedict observed that since the council of the media was accessible to everyone, not just to students of theology who studied the documents of the council. It became the dominant interpretation of what happened at Vatican II. And this created many disasters and much suffering. Specifically, he mentioned the closure of seminaries and convents, the promotion of banal liturgy, and the application of notions of popular sovereignty to issues of church governance. He concluded, however, that some 50 years after the council, the virtual council is broken and is lost. I think perhaps Pope Benedict was a little optimistic um, in his conclusion that the virtual council is broken and lost. I think that in many parts of the church, uh, when people think about the Second Vatican Council, they think about um, ideas that were really the ideas that were created by the media and were not really consistent with the teachings contained in the actual documents. In this particular address, Pope Benedict divided the documents of the council into two broad categories. First, there were the documents inspired by what he called the Rhineland Alliance. This was a network of young theologians from France, Germany, Belgium, and Holland. These were the documents on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, on the church, Lumen Gentium, on scripture, tradition, and revelation, De Verbum, and on ecumenism, the document Unitatis Redintegratio. In some ways, these documents were mopping up the unfinished business of the First Vatican Council, which was brought to an end in the 19th century by the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War. Certainly the theology which underpinned these documents had been developing in the decades between the two world wars and they did not suddenly arise at the council. While the members of the Rhineland Alliance were interested in ecclesiology and liturgical theology, ecumenism and scriptural exegesis, the American delegates to the council wanted a declaration on religious liberty to deal with their political problems. The French were similarly concerned with the whole complex phenomenon of the culture of modernity. And yet others, deeply horrified by what had happened to the Jewish people in Christian countries, saw the need for some statement about the covenant of the Old Testament and Judaism in general. As a consequence, the documents Dignitatis Humanae, Nostre Aetate, and Guardium et Spes became what Benedict called a very important second trilogy. Of all of these documents, the two closest to the heart of the young Father Ratzinger were De Verbum, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, and Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church. As a young conciliar peritus, that is, an expert theological advisor, Professor Ratzinger was involved in the drafting of the document De Verbum, 
and his patron, Cardinal Frings of Cologne, who was the cardinal who invited the young Joseph Ratzinger to the Second Vatican Council to be his theological advisor, also intervened extensively in the debate on that document. Ratzinger's reflections on these interventions were published in an article in Communio in 1988. In this article, he recalled that Cardinal Frings's argument that when one speaks of the two sources of revelation as scripture and tradition, one is correct at the level of epistemology. We do experience what revelation is from scripture and from tradition. Nonetheless, Cardinal Frings also argued that the scripture and tradition two sources formula was false if looked at from a metaphysical perspective, since both scripture and tradition flow from revelation as their common source. In De Verbum, the fathers of the council overcame various theological problems by holding that Christ himself is the revelation of God the Father to humanity, and that both scripture and tradition flow from this common revelation. De Verbum is thus a classic example of how the council reformed an area of theology, which had given rise to a rather large number of problems, at least as far back to the 16th century. In particular, in an article published in 1969 in Herbert Forgrimler's Commentaries on the Documents of the Council, Cardinal Ratzinger, Father Ratzinger as he was, stated that in the drafting of De Verbum, the Council Fathers were concerned with overcoming neo-scholastic intellectualism for which revelation chiefly meant a store of mysterious supernatural teachings, which automatically reduces faith to an acceptance of these supernatural insights. This was archetypically the Suarezian account of revelation, that is the account of revelation which was developed by the um, Jesuit theologian Francisco Suarez. <clears throat> and this particular account of Revelation is now regarded as a reversal of the position of classical Thomism. In other words, the account of Revelation, which was developed by the 16th century Jesuit Francisco Suarez is regarded as a reversal of the understanding of revelation in the teaching of both St. Thomas Aquinas and also uh, St. Bonaventure. For Suarez, revelation did not disclose God himself, but rather pieces of information about God. When Ratzinger was a student, the Suarezian account was dominant to such a degree that when he criticized it in his Habilitatium thesis, preferring the position of Saint Bonaventure, he was forced to withdraw the criticism under penalty of not passing the thesis. So he almost didn't pass his Habilitatium thesis because he had been critical of Suarez. However, at the Second Vatican Council, um, the fathers of the council decided that this approach of Suarez uh, was not the best approach. And the approach of the young father Ratzinger um, and not just him, but some other um, advisors at the council was the idea that actually fed into De Verbum. So he had a major impact upon the drafting of the document De Verbum, the document on revelation and tradition and scripture and the relationship between those three. 
And the, the number one thing to understand about that document, Dave Urban, is that it's an attempt to overcome the Suarezian understanding of these subjects. While Dave Urban addressed the topics of scripture, tradition and revelation and the relationship between them, Lumen Gentium focused on ecclesiology, on the nature of the church. The reform engendered here was one of moving away from a primarily juridical account of the church, focused on the distinction between clerical and lay members to an understanding based on multi-dimensional sacramental relationships. With reference to the notion of sacramental relations, the great French Cardinal Henri de Lubac emphasized that the sacramental form of relationality is one that ties together the church as the mystical body of Christ with the church as the historical people of God. Moreover, the church not only links the visible with the invisible, time with eternity, but also the universal with the particular, the old and the new covenants. This link between the invisible and visible elements of ecclesial communion constitutes the church as the universal sacrament of salvation. Thus, in chapter one of Lumen Gentium, one finds the following declaration. Christ, the one mediator, set up his holy church here on earth as a visible structure, a community of faith, hope and love. And he sustains it unceasingly, and through it he pours out grace and truth on everyone. This society, however, equipped with hierarchical structures and the mystical body of Christ, a visible assembly and a spiritual community, an earthly church and a church enriched with heavenly gifts, must not be considered as two things, but as forming a complex reality comprising one human and one divine element. It is therefore by no mean analogy that it is likened to the mystery of the incarnate word. Concomitant with this move away from a focus on a juridical or legal notion of the church, with its primary distinction between priestly and other religious members on the one side, and lay members on the other, was the council's endorsement of a universal call to holiness. That is the idea that every single Catholic is called to be holy. Notwithstanding this affirmation of a variety of spiritual missions in the life of the church, some lay and some clerical, Lumen Gentium nonetheless affirmed the authority of the Petrine office and of the sacerdotal priesthood. There was nothing in this document that could in any way justify the subsequent attacks on the papacy and the priesthood, which were some of the more infamous products of the virtual council in the decade of the 1970s and beyond. So, um, the, the document Lumen Gentium affirmed the priesthood as we know it. It affirmed uh, the notion priesthood is one of the sacraments of the church. And it affirmed the Petrine office, the papacy, the, the, the office of St. Peter. Um, but of course, in the so-called virtual council, in the late 1960s and 1970s, there were many people running around saying that we need to get rid of the papacy. It would be consistent with the teaching of Vatican II to, to eliminate the papacy. And of course, Hans Kuhn was, was one of the leading theologians promoting that idea. Um, he died, I think, two weeks ago, one week ago. 
1972, Joseph Ratzinger, along with Hansers von Balthasar and Henri de Lubach, founded the theology journal, which they named Communio. It would be too simplistic to describe it as a response to the virtual council only, because in addition to the virtual council, there was also the council of the other concilia pariti, who in the 1970s closely associated themselves with a rival journal known as Concilium. The English historian Philip Trower has described the intellectual battle between the two different interpretations of the council as presented in the pages of the journals Communio and Concilium as a quote, theological Star Wars played out over the heads of the faithful. In other words, what people in parishes received as the teaching of the Second Vatican Council were off, was often the residue of ideas floated by the former Periti in one or other of these journals. Since the concilium interpretations were often a lot closer to the interpretations of the virtual council, during the final years of the pontificate of Pope Paul VI, they tended to dominate. However, in 1985, St. John Paul II called a synod to reflect on the different interpretations of the council. And following this synod, the Communio Ecclesiology began to receive strong magisterial endorsement. Pope Benedict obliquely referred to this in his address to the clergy of Rome. Speaking of the concept of communion, he remarked that although philologically speaking, it was not fully developed at the council. It was nonetheless as a result of the council that the concept of communion came more and more to be the expression of the church's essence. Communion in its different dimensions, communion with the Trinitarian God, who is himself communion between Father, Son and Holy Spirit and sacramental communion and concrete communion in the episcopate and in the life of the church. In this final address to the clergy of the Diocese of Rome, he added that the application of communio ecclesiology to the life of the church is not yet complete and more needs to be done. So um, just to, to recapitulate, capitulate a little there. The two journals Concilium and Communio continue to exist. Uh, the Communio journal I think is now published in 17 different languages around the world, um, somewhere between 15 and 17. It, it fluctuates sometimes. Both St. John Paul II uh, and, and Pope Benedict were strongly supportive of the Communio um, understanding of the Second Vatican Council. When St. John Paul II was a cardinal in Krakow, he actually uh, made it possible for the Communio Journal to be published in Polish. He, he was the person who did the groundwork to make, to bring Communio to Poland and to get it published in Polish. And uh, Pope Benedict was one of the three founding fathers of the Communio Journal, along with Hansers von Balthasar and Henri de Lubach. The concilia, sorry, the concilia document, which was least acceptable to Ratzinger, was Guardium et Spes. This is the document on the nature of the church in relation to the modern world. Along with Cardinal Walter Casper, with whom um, Cardinal Ratzinger often had theological disagreements, but in this case, they both agreed that the major problem with this document is that it is poorly drafted. It was put together at the end of the Second Vatican Council and it was rushed through uh, because the council was ending 
and um, if there was to be a document on the church in the modern world, then there was only a short period of time in which to get it together. And so it's a document that's not well integrated. If you've ever had the experience of being on a committee where there are, say, 10 different people drafting a document, it's sometimes difficult to get consensus uh, when you have a number of people. And, and so what happens is that um, paragraphs go in that keep everybody happy, but they're not really well integrated into the overall document. And that's just what happened with Gaudiumet Space. In the first section of Gaudiumet Space, the anthropology has been described as, quote, merely theistically coloured. The anthropology is this notion that the human person is made in the image of God, which is true. It's, you know, absolutely true statement. But in the second part of the document, the anthropology is explicitly Trinitarian. So in the second part of the document, the, the, the human person's relationship with the Trinity is explained. So in the first part, we just have the human person and a notion of God. But in the second part, we have the notion that God is a Trinitarian God. But these, these two parts of the document are not integrated. It's well known that St. John Paul II was deeply influenced by paragraph 22 of this document. And that this particular paragraph looks as though it came word for word from an earlier work of Henri de Lubac. And paragraph 22 is explicitly Christocentric. It's the paragraph that says that we only understand the human person in the light of Christ, that the human person cannot be properly understood unless we understand Christ, unless we understand that, that Jesus Christ was the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, and also the second Adam, the new Adam. Ratzinger strongly approved of paragraph 22, as did St. John Paul II, and he described the document as a whole as offering a daring new theological anthropology, which he endorsed, although he thought it had not been well articulated. So, so both Ratzinger um, slash Benedict and Carol Wojtyla slash St. John Paul II, both of them thought that within Guardian at Space, there is a, a great theological anthropology, and it's, it's a good thing. Um, it's a Trinitarian anthropology, but it, they think it wasn't well expressed. But it's, it's good, it's there, but it's not well expressed. And what happens later in the pontificate of St. John Paul II is that he writes in cyclicals on the Trinity and the relationship between the human person and the Trinity to really um, explain what is implicit in Gaudium et Spes, but not yet developed in Gaudium et Spes. As a consequence of the drafting issues, and of the un, underdeveloped theology in some areas, Gaudium et Spes tended to give rise to two different interpretations of the relationship of the church to the world and two different pastoral strategies. In shorthand terms, they could be described as the Christocentric Trinitarianism of St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict. And the correlationism of theologians such as Edward Skillebex. I don't know if you've come across the theologian Edward Skillebex. His name looks like a spelling mistake. 
It's a, a Flemish name, S-C-H-I-L-L-E-B-E-E-C-K-X. It looks as though somebody has gone to a computer and randomly typed out letters, but his name is Skillebex. Skillebex and a network of theologians around Skillebex located in Holland and Belgium, They're, they were um, the leaders of the concilium movement, the con this alternative concilium journal and the alternative reading of the Second Vatican Council. And they promoted this pastoral strategy called correlationism. Their idea was that the way to evangelize in the modern world is to find concepts that are popular within the general culture and try and tie the Catholic faith to those concepts. And uh, correlate means to, you know, to, to sort of tie something in relation to something else. So if, for example, um, feminism is popular in the culture, you try and present Christianity as feminist. If um, democracy is popular in the contemporary culture, you try and present Christianity as democratic. But when you have this approach, it is always the culture that is positioning Christ, not Christ that is positioning the culture, if that makes sense. So you, you it could be said that there are, there are two different pastoral strategies. There's the correlation of strategy where Christ and Christianity is positioned by the general culture. Or there's the position of St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict, which could be called Trinitarian transformation. That there should be, in their understanding, a Trinitarian transformation of the culture. So the Trinity is central and it transforms the whole culture rather than the culture being central and the church responding to that in different ways um, and, and treating the, the Christian teachings like, like marketing agents treat products. You know, if you want to sell a new brand of mobile telephone, you have marketing people who, who try and talk about the new mobile telephone in language that will appear to the, to the people who might be buying the telephone. Well, correlationism sort of had that approach to evangelization. It's the approach of the public relations expert. It's not the approach of a sacred priesthood. So another way to put this is to say that the correlationist strategy tends to separate Christian values from Christian sacraments and to find points of agreement between the so-called Christian values distilled from actual belief in Christ and participation in the sacramental life of the church and non-Christian values. The most common example of this is the promotion of Christian philanthropic projects. The idea is that the sacramental um, dimensions of the faith are a private matter for private consumption while working on philanthropic projects is a public enterprise. Today, it is becoming increasingly common for Catholics who find themselves in debates with atheists to refer to the philanthropic works of the church as a justification for the Catholic faith. In other words, these correlationists will say Christianity is really good because it builds hospitals 
it builds schools, uh, it builds nursing homes for the elderly. But the atheist can then respond, but we can do that too. One doesn't need to be a Christian to build a hospital or a nursing home or a school. Um, and Pope Benedict says, the, the response of the typical atheist to correlationism is quite reasonably, why should we be burdened with the story of Christ? You know, in other words, if all Christianity does is offer philanthropic projects, why do we need to be burdened with, with Christ, with the Trinity? Um, and, and so, so Benedict thinks that this, this particular approach, this particular pastoral strategy um, is counterproductive. And he has um, a saying which I really like. He says, um, the church is not a haberdashery shop um, that changes its fashions in its windows with every new season. So a, a haberdashery shop, I don't know if you have haberdashery shops in China, but they're places where you go to buy, say, buttons for your coat, um, bits of material to make dresses, ribbons. Um, what else do you get in a haberdashery shop? Wool to make jumpers. So the sort of place where you go to buy material to make clothes is a haberdashery shop. And Pope Benedict says the church is not one of these. If you have a haberdashery shop every season, the items in the window of the shop change. You know, in winter, there will be wool in the window of the shop. In summer, there might be um, clothes for swimming, you know. So each season in a haberdashery shop, there are different things in the window of the shop. Benedict says the church is not like this. What the church has to offer is something that is perennial. It doesn't change. Um, he speaks of the memory of the church and the deposit of the faith. And he says that what, was, that what Christ gave to the apostles in the first century is the same as what the church gives to people today in the 21st century, or it should be the same. It shouldn't be different. If you want to, to read Ratzinger's most extensive article on Gaudiumet Space, it is in a book edited by Herbert Forgrimler, spelled V-O-R-G-R-I-M-L-E-R, and it's called Commentaries on the Documents of the Second Vatican Council. And there are five volumes of those commentaries. And uh, in one of those volumes, I think it's number five, Ratzinger has this article on Gaudium et Spes. He suggested that according to one reading of Gaudium et Spes, there is no reason why the average person of goodwill should suddenly be burdened with the story of Christ. In other words, some readings of Gaudium et Spes raise the question, does the incarnation actually make any difference? But if one focuses on paragraph 22 and treats it as the hermeneutical lens through which the remainder of the document is to be studied, then the incarnation is absolutely central. It's not something we can dispense with. And in his Trinitarian encyclicals, Redemptor Hominis, Dives in Misericordia, and Dominum et Vivificantum, John Paul II followed through the logic of paragraph 22, and developed a theological anthropology, which became one of the most significant theological achievements of his pontificate. 
and Ratzinger slash Benedict was completely behind that project. So, so you can say in shorthand that a major project of the pontificate of St. John Paul II was developing a theological anthropology, a Trinitarian theological anthropology. And related to that was his catechesis on human love. And that's another important part of the pontificate of John Paul II. When he first became Pope, uh, there was this, this major crisis in the church about contraception uh, and premarital sexual intimacy. St. John Paul II agreed strongly with Pope Paul VI that contraception was immoral. And he also agreed that premarital sexual intimacy is immoral. And so when he is first Pope, he dedicates a number of his Wednesday audience addresses to explaining why premarital sexual intimacy is wrong and why contraception is wrong. And that is called the Catechesis on Human Love. And in the English world, those homilies or lectures of St. John Paul II were published as his Theology of the Body. So you often see the expression theology of the body. Because, because you're, you, you come from China, you may not know what happened in Western countries in the 1960s, but you, you may know, I don't know, but in, in Western countries in the 1960s, um, there was what we call the sexual revolution. And uh, all of a sudden, a whole generation stopped following the Christian teaching about um, sexuality and marriage. Uh, and there was a lot of social experimentation, um, people living together before marriage, um, people contracepting for the first time. Uh, and what John Paul II does is to provide like an intellectual answer to that, not just, well, this is wrong, but, you know, a really developed explanation of why that was wrong. And, and so that, that whole pontificate of John Paul II is really, really important as um, an intellectual response to the sexual revolution that occurred in Western countries in the 1960s. But that response is placed into the context of Trinitarian anthropology. And the place where you find the most um, developed account of that is those three encyclicals of the early part of the pontificate of St. John Paul II. Redemptor Hominis explains the relationship between the human person and Christ. Dives in Misericordia explains the relationship between the human person and God the Father. And Dominum et Vivificantum explains the relationship between the human person and the Holy Spirit. So those, those three documents are really, really important. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was, was totally supportive um, of those documents. In his own pontificate, however, Pope Benedict focused more on the problems created by bad interpretations of the document on the liturgy, Sacro Sanctum Concilium, spent more time focused on the liturgical problems than on the Gaudium et Spes problems. So John Paul II sort of dealt with the Gaudium et Spes problems. Benedict, in his pontificate, deals with um, 
the liturgical problems. In, an, in his address to the clergy of Rome, he offered the following summary of the, what he calls the virtual council's approach to liturgy, the wrong approach to liturgy, in other words. There was no interest in liturgy as an act of faith, but as something where comprehensible things are done, a matter of community activity, something profane. As we know, there was a tendency to say, sacrality is a pagan thing, perhaps also a thing of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it matters only that Christ died outside the gates in the profane world. Sacrality must therefore be abolished and profanity now spreads to worship. Worship is no longer worship, but a community act with communal participation. These trivializations of the idea of the council were virulent in the process of putting the liturgical reform into practice. They were born from a vision of the council detached from that of faith. If one combs through the many homilies and articles and books written by Ratzinger for comments on the council, the consistent thread running through everything is that the documents need to be read with a Christocentric Trinitarian focus. What happened in, in Western countries is that because of this correlationist strategy of the concilium theologians, in the 1960s, two things happened. Oh, maybe, maybe three things happen. The first thing happens at the council that the council fathers agree that the liturgy can include more vernacular, all right? So the, what really what the council fathers wanted was that the scriptures would be read in the vernacular languages. Not, not the whole mass in the vernacular, but, but, the, but the readings from the scriptures they thought should be in the vernacular. And at the council, um, Sacrosanctum Concilium, this, this document, it, it itself does not create the new mass. It, it simply opens the door for including more vernacular language. But after the council concludes, a committee is set up to examine liturgical reform. And out of that committee comes what we now know as the Novus Ordo Liturgy of Paul VI. And Paul VI was persuaded that uh, people would prefer mass in the vernacular. He was persuaded that it would be something popular if, if mass was offered entirely in vernacular languages. And of course, um, many people were really, really sad about the loss of the Latin mass. And it was a very, controversial decision uh, because uh, when you have mass in Latin, you have, as it were, a sacred language, a language that is different from the everyday language. And so when people would go to mass, they would find it easier to mentally move into a sacred space when the language was a special sacred language. And, and so this move to mass in the vernacular was in some, some parts of the church very, very unpopular. And not only did that happen, not only was it an unpopular decision in some parts of the church, but the correlationist theologians said we must make the mass correlated to the contemporary culture. 
So we need to have hymns that have lots of modern language, not, you know, not, not using the language from the third century or the fifth century, but we want language from 1960s. And we want contemporary music. So in Western countries, we ended up with what are called rock masses. So you have people playing um, drums, playing guitars, you have rock music in the liturgy. And this is all defended by these correlationist theologians because you are, you are trying to take the liturgy of the church and relate it to the contemporary culture. And if people in the contemporary culture are interested in rock music, the church must offer a mass with rock music. This was the mentality, okay. So in a lot of Cardinal Ratzinger's publications, um, he is highly critical of this approach to liturgy, which makes it mundane rather than heavenly. And he, he uses expressions like parish tea party liturgy. Um, if you have a tea party, you invite your friends and it's a social event, it's not a sacred event. Uh, he also says that this idea that the liturgy should be something uh, mundane, something very close to the, the ordinary culture of the people, he said it is like in the Old Testament when the Jewish people began to worship the golden calf. You know, in the book of Exodus, there is this moment when uh, Aaron says, the people can't relate to an invisible God. It's not possible for them to relate to a God who is invisible. So we've got to create something that they can relate to. And so they create a, a golden calf and the people worship the golden calf. Ratzinger says that this idea of having liturgy that is everyday, mundane, common, something that people can easily relate to, it is like worshipping a golden calf. So he's completely critical of that movement. So you find throughout his pontificate, you know, he is trying to teach people about good liturgical theology. Uh, he publishes the book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, where he explains good liturgical theology. And in 2007, he also brought back um, the Latin mass, the, the so-called extraordinary form of the liturgy and, and allowed that form of the liturgy uh, to, to be said once again. So in that period between 1968 and 2007, it was possible to say the Latin mass, but you had to get special permission from bishops and it was very bureaucratic. But after 2007, um, it became much, much easier to, to have mass in Latin. And um, he, he did that uh, because he understood that many people were very unhappy with the contemporary liturgy. Now, just a few more comments on the pontificate of Benedict and its relationship to problems at Vatican II. I mentioned um, that he liked paragraph 22 of Guardian et Space. In his encyclical, Space Selvi, which is his encyclical on hope, paragraph 22 
of that encyclical is also his response to the problematic parts of Gaudium et Spes. So, um, as I explained, St. John Paul II offered three encyclicals on the Trinity, one on God the Father, one on God the Son, and one on God the Holy Spirit, known as his Trinitarian suite of encyclicals. What Benedict does is to also offer a trilogy of encyclicals. His trilogy is on the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And the one on hope is the one where he offers a kind of critique of Guardian at Space. And if I'll read you paragraph 22 of Space Selvi, it says, a self-critique of modernity is needed in dialogue with Christianity and its concept of hope. In this dialogue, Christians too, in the context of their knowledge and experience, must learn anew in what their hope truly consists, what they have to offer the world and what they cannot offer the world. Flowing into this self-critique of the modern age, their also has to be a self-critique of modern Christianity, which must constantly renew its self-understanding, setting out from its roots. On this subject, all we can attempt here are a few brief observations. First, we must ask ourselves, what does progress really mean? What does it promise and what does it not promise? If technical progress is not matched by corresponding progress in the human person's moral formation, in the inner growth of the person, then it is no progress at all. In the following paragraph 23, he was critical of notions of rationality detached from God. And he argued that if progress needs moral growth on the part of humanity, then the reason behind action and capacity for action is likewise urgently in need of integration through reason's openness to the saving forces of faith, to the differentiation between good and evil. Only in this way does reason become truly human. This means that the Enlightenment project of the 18th century, the, the project largely associated with philosophers like Immanuel Kant, of severing faith from reason, and then with a much reduced rational capacity, setting about building political utopias based on nothing more than various forms of faithless rationality was never capable of achieving freedom. That's a really important point of Benedict's, that if you separate faith and reason, and reason is not allowed to have anything to do with faith, and you try and establish some kind of political utopia based on reason alone, it always ends in tyranny. It never provides freedom. So while space selvi, the, the encyclical on the theological virtue of hope can be read as an intellectual antidote to the concilium readings of Guardian and Space as a call to accommodate the Christian faith to the culture of modernity. Deus Caritas Est can be read as Benedict's answer to the Nietzschean charge that Christianity had killed Eros. So in the 19th century, the, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche argued that Christianity had destroyed Eros. Christianity had destroyed sexual desire. It had totally condemned sexual desire as something bad. And this Nietzschean criticism of Christianity becomes very powerful in the 1960s. And the generation of the 1960s say, yes, Nietzsche is right. Christianity attacked 
um, sexual desire as something bad. And we want to affirm sexual desire as something good. So Deus Caritas Est, Benedict answers Nietzsche's charge. Christianity did not condemn Eros. What Christianity condemned was the separation of Eros from Agape. So Eros and Agape are two Greek words referring to both um, love and, and sexual desire. And um, the idea is that from a, from a Christian position, from, from the position of the theology of Pope Benedict, Eros and Agape go together. And if they are kept together, it's all okay. You only end up with problems if Eros is separated from Agape, just as you only end up with problems if faith is separated from reason. And his um, final encyclical was, well, it was called Lumen Fide and Pope Benedict drafted the encyclical, but then he abdicated before it was promulgated and then Pope Francis added a, a few of his own um, ideas, not many, and published the encyclical as Lumen Fide by Pope Francis. But the large majority of that encyclical was written by Pope Benedict. And so um, in that encyclical, you get an analysis of what goes wrong if you try and separate faith and reason. So to, to try and summarize all of that in a few words, I would say the very first point is that Ratzinger believes that the Second Vatican Council um, needs to be approached with what he called a hermeneutic of continuity. He sees the council as dealing with intellectual problems in the life of the church in a way that reforms some of the explanation that were being given, but it doesn't destroy any of the original deposit of the faith. It doesn't overturn um, centuries of magisterial teaching. It is not to be read as some kind of revolutionary moment in the life of the church. And that's so he constantly uses the expression hermeneutic of reform or hermeneutic of continuity. That's the first principle. Um, the second principle is that he, he and the Communio scholars are not opposed to Thomas Aquinas. Um, they think that Thomas Aquinas was a great doctor of the church. But before the Second Vatican Council, um, scholasticism was a intellectual movement in the church that had taken concepts from St. Thomas Aquinas and systematized them and taught Thomistic ideas in a very legalistic sort of way. And people like Pope Benedict thought that there was you know, nothing wrong with the teaching, but it wasn't, it wasn't a good way to present the faith to people in church, you know. In other words, it was, it was, too, it was presented like a big intellectual system and you had to know what all the concepts meant. You really needed a theological training to follow it. And part of what they were trying to do was to bring in a more patristic, more um, personalistic sort of presentation. But they were not opposed to St. Thomas Aquinas or his ideas. Um, but after the council, uh, there was, among the concilium types, there was a kind of movement against anything associated with Thomas Aquinas. And Pope Benedict does not affirm that at, at all. 
does, does not agree with that opposition um, to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the, the next major principle I would say is that both Benedict and John Paul II believe that the Second Vatican Council must be interpreted in a way that puts the Trinity in the very centre of church teaching. So the Trinity and especially Christ is, is the most important focus of the documents of the Second Vatican Council. And in theological language that, that's usually expressed uh, by saying that they wanted to give the documents a Christocentric accent. Mm. 